Well, good morning, Westwood. Isn't it good to be in God's house today? Man, it may be ugly outside, but it's beautiful on the inside, isn't it? There's no place like being in God's house among God's people. So I'm glad you're here. I bring greetings uh, to you from uh, our pastor and his wife who are in Ethiopia uh, doing ministry. He texted, we texted back and forth yesterday, and it was great to get to do that. Uh, so uh, we want to certainly be praying for them. They're praying for us. Uh, also want to welcome those who are uh, worshiping with us online. Good morning. Uh, don't know where you are, but we're glad that you're here with us. Uh, also, I'm excited about the, the group from Mexico that just came back on Thursday night. Aren't you glad to be a part of ascending and going church? Uh, I am, uh, for one, excited to be a member here. It's always a privilege for me to get to teach uh, God's Word in my own home church. And so uh, I always look forward to that. I always question Pastor Kenneth's sanity uh, in letting me do that, but uh, I'm grateful. Hope you have your, uh, your uh, outline. It's in your order of service. Uh, I like to use this as a listening guide. I hope you'll get it and take uh, notes as we uh, walk through this time together. I've entitled this talk today, One Small Step. On July the 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong walked down the ladder of the, of the lunar module and did something for the first time in all of history, and that was to step onto the surface of the moon. He made a statement that was literally heard around the world. He said, one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. You know, it's interesting, and I know this to be true because I've studied his life. He didn't get up on that morning and say, hmm, I think I'll go to the moon today. It doesn't work like that, does it? As a matter of fact, he went to his first air show at the age of two. He flew in his first airplane at the age of five. At the age of 16, he got his student sort of permit to be able to fly. At 17, he got his pilot's license. At 18, he was in Pensacola being trained to fly jets with the Navy. He flew 78 combat missions in Korea for a total of 121 seat hours in combat. When he came home, he went to Purdue and MIT where he got his aeronautical engineering degree. After his uh, graduation, he was hired to be a test pilot where he flew 900 flights in some of the latest aircraft that was being designed of the day. He did all of that before he was asked to serve as a part of the astronaut program. And yet Apollo 11 was not his first flight. Gemini 8 was his first flight. But it was Apollo 11 that he stepped out onto the surface of the moon and took one giant leap. You see, that is exactly like the Christian life. As a matter of fact, this is one of the better illustrations about the prog this progressive sanctification. It's this lifelong pursuit 
of spiritual holiness, of spiritual maturity, of walking out our salvation. We don't just wake up the next day after becoming a Christian and all of a sudden we're spiritually mature. It takes one step after another step after another step. So that's what, that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about one small step. Now before we can kind of get into what does it mean and how do we accomplish this giant leap, people must first, and I want you to write this down, before one can take one giant leap, they must make the first step. It was true for Neil Armstrong. It's true for those of us who are entering Christendom. We must make the first step. And Paul sort of gave us a road to do that. He gave us a road map that's called the Roman road to help people make the first step. And so the verses are listed there, and you see that in Romans 3.23. It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then yet while we were still sinners, Paul writes, Christ died for me and for you. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then probably one of my favorite single verses in all the Bible in Romans 10, 9, because it tells us exactly the action we have to take to be able to make the first step. And that is, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, emphatically, Paul writes, you will be saved. So there are three things kind of the first step includes, and I want you to write these three down. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm glad you're here because I know you're seeking spiritual truth. Let me, let me sort of walk you through three things you need to do to make the first step. Number one, the first step includes repenting of your sin. Unfortunately, there are a lot of pretty famous pastors who are on TV today that won't even mention the word sin. Can you imagine? As a matter of fact, there are churches today, I mean huge churches in our country today that the pastor will not even mention the word sin. But I want you to listen to me carefully, church. At the vortex of the salvation process is the reality and the realization that we're sinners and cannot save ourselves. And because of that condition, God sent his son, Jesus, that the work he did on the cross would help us to be able to be made in a right relationship with God through accepting Jesus and the work he did and the shedding of his blood on the cross. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. So in that process, we have to realize that we are a sinner in need of a Savior and cannot save ourselves, and we need to repent of our sin of unbelief. The second thing is, not only does it include repenting of sin, but it also includes trusting in Jesus for salvation. Those words could be interchangeable there because Paul says, trust or believe or have faith in Jesus, that he was, in fact, 
crucified. He was, in fact, buried in the cross, and he was, I'm sorry, he, he died on the cross and was, in fact, buried in the tomb, and he was, in fact, on the third day raised from the grave. You have to trust in that. That is what you have to put your faith in. Now, something that we usually don't talk about is the third point. I want you to write this down, and that is submitting to him as Lord. Now, stay with me here. I'm not talking about lordship salvation. I'm not talking about earning our way to salvation. We're saved by grace through faith plus absolutely nothing. But I want you to understand this. When you make a decision to follow Christ, that decision does not stop by you just being able to say, wow, I've missed hell. That decision is not, well, wow, I can sit back and eat bonbons and watch television spiritually, and the reality is I'm going to be able to go to heaven, and God expects nothing from me. That is not true. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, you need to, you need to count the cost to fellowship. Wow. Because I've called you from something to something. I've called you from a life of death and sin and suffering to a life of obedience and fellowship and servanthood. So those three things. Now, I've come across a world-class interesting word over the last month or so in the Hebrew, and the word is shanah. And the word Shinah is the most unusual word that I've ever come across in all my studies of biblical languages. It's, it's, it's a word that's one word, obviously, that has two different meanings, two different words on two different ends of the spectrum. That is very unusual biblically in biblical language. So on one side of the definition... It's coming out of the natural. On the other end of the spectrum, it's coming out of the supernatural, out of the flesh and the spirit at the same time. So in the natural, this word means, I want you to write this down, it means to repeat. It means to repeat. So if you were to fill in this blank or finish this statement, history has a tendency to what? Repeat itself. History has a tendency to repeat itself. Also, the natural has a tendency to repeat itself. Flesh has a tendency to repeat itself. I'll give you an example. Our office is in Vestavia. Right across the breezeway from my office is a gym. Planet Fitness is literally right across the breezeway so that I have to walk by the gym to go into the office every day I go to the office. It's wonderful. What do you think? Now, realize we have this huge glass front of our office, and Planet Fitness has this huge glass front. What do you think that looked like on January the 2nd? The place was packed. I couldn't even find a place to park to get into the office. Let me ask you a follow-up question. What do you think that's going to look like on February the 2nd? It's going to be a ghost town. I'm going to be able to park on the front row. Why? Because we have a tendency to repeat. We make this commitment. We're going to eat better. We're going to, we're going to get more rest. We're going to get more exercise. And we go out there and bam, we're there January 2nd. Oh, man, we're gone February 2nd. Because we repeat. 
You know, marriage, remarriage, we have repeating things happening there, and I'll be within plus or minus 2 or 3%, so give me a little latitude here. But 50% of first marriages end in divorce. 70% of second, 80% of third, 90% of fourth marriages end in divorce. Why? Because we repeat the same actions expecting a different results. And the truth of the matter is, in order for us to break that cycle, something has to change. It's also true for strongholds. You look at alcoholism, you look at drug abuse, you look at sex abuse, you look at abusing of food, you're looking at lying, you look at stealing, you look at whatever stronghold you fill in the blank. We in the flesh and in the natural, we have a tendency, a propensity toward repeating that. And yet, on the other end of that word is the word change. So what is God looking for us to do? He's looking for us not to repeat those things, but in the spirit, he's looking for leading us, challenging us, teaching us to change. That is kind of at the vortex of what I want us to talk about today. So if you have your Bibles or your smartphone or your iPad or your computer or whatever those things we have, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Now, several years ago, I taught from Romans chapter 6 here, at, but it was in a different context and different verses. You might have remembered that. You might not have. But today, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, in light of all that's been said. Now, as you're turning, it's important for us to know that, that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. He's writing to believers in Rome. He's writing to people who have already taken the first step. You can't begin a journey toward maturity until you've taken the first step. And that's who Paul is writing to, people who have come to know Christ as their Savior. So what shall we say then, Paul says? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not exclamation point by the way how shall we who die to sin live any longer in it or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death <clears throat> that, <clears throat> that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father even so we also should, and there's the word, walk step by step by step in newness of life. Now, there are a lot of things I could teach out of here, but there are three steps that I want to bring to your attention today. Step number one, I want you to write this. <clears throat> Our liberty does not give us the license to sin. Now, let me help you understand a little bit about where Paul is Paul grew up in Judaism, he grew up in the law, he grew up in the temple. Not only was his father a Pharisee, but he was a Pharisee. He was described as a Pharisee of Pharisees. At the very core, a Pharisee could quote the first five books of the Bible word for word. Their superstars, which Paul would have more than likely have been classified, could even quote the entire Old Testament. 
Paul understood the law. He understood the sacrificial system. He understood everything about Judaism. And then all of a sudden, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he was introduced to, the, to grace for the first time. And so he understood this struggle that was going on between the law and grace. And so he's anticipating and he's teaching by saying, hey, listen, so are you saying, Paul, that sin can abound so that grace can abound all the more? Paul uses the strongest negative in the entire Greek language here when he says, certainly not. There are two things I want you to fill in here so you can get a sense of where Paul's coming from. And that is, may it never be. So when Paul says, certainly not, you can write this down, it says, may it never be. As a matter of fact, I'll take that to another level, containing a sense of outrage. Paul is outraged. He is at a point in his life where he's going, hang on, you as a Christian should never think like that. You should never act on that. It is an outrage for you to think that you have an open checkbook to go back to your old way of life, walking in sin, when you now have a new life. Some of you don't know me very well. Some of you don't know me at all. Um, for seven years, I was the pastor of Dayspring Baptist Church down in Mobile, our Churches feel very much alike. You know, we did three services. I mean, if you were to sort of step out and be in the Dayspring service this morning or, or, or somebody from Dayspring to step in this service, you would feel very much at home. As a matter of fact, this morning as I was standing right over there, it just felt like home. So I know you don't know me that well, but there's a, there was a couple in our church. He taught Sunday school. She was very involved in the worship ministry and you guys know how stuff travels, and I had heard word that they were beginning to have some trouble, and so it didn't surprise me when they ended up on my calendars coming to see me, and he was just broken, and there was an, there was an arrogance in her. There was a stiff-neckedness in her. She looked at me, and she said, I know that it's a sin to commit adultery, and I know that it's a sin when the partner has when the mate has not committed adultery I know that that at that point divorce is a sin but I'm going to do it anyway I said really she said yeah because God will forgive me of that how about that you know in the Bible God says God's word says that God will not be mocked and here is this believer this professing Christian who says I'm going to step in intentionally into sin because God will forgive me I don't know of any better way to spit in the face of God than that and here she is and 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 I challenged her I said, I said you do realize you know the seriousness of that statement you do realize the danger of passing down to the second and third and fourth generation the decisions that you're making the seriousness of that. The truth of the matter is our liberty does not give us a license to sin. Number two, and this is kind of a natural segue into step number two, our baptism with Christ is a picture 
of the death of our previous life. It's a picture of the death of our previous life. Now, Paul is not talking about our participation. He's talking about our identification with Jesus' death. So as he's writing this, he's not talking about us literally, physically being there and dying physically with Jesus on the cross. He's talking about that metaphorically. He's talking about that spiritually. He's talking about that from an identification standpoint. I don't know exactly how many people I've baptized, but it's been several thousand. And, and, and the majority of times when I do a baptism and the person standing in the water, I will say to the person, to the congregation, you know, this brother or this sister is standing here in the water representing what their life was like before Christ. When they accepted Jesus as their Savior, then when they were buried with him in baptism, submerged under the surface of the water, it's a picture of them dying to their old way of life, their old living, their past, their previous life. When they come up out of the water, they've been raised to walk in what, church? The newness of life. Here's an incredible truth I want you to write down because I think this will make a huge difference in all of our pursuit of spiritual maturity upon our salvation every sin that we have ever committed is wiped clean ponder that for a minute think about all that we had done leading up to the salvation experience and the moment that we accepted Jesus our savior he placed our sins as far as the east is from the west he cleansed us from all unrighteousness in that moment, justification took place, and we know the word justification means just as if you never sinned. Is that not amazing? Wow. And yet Paul goes on from this into step number three, and if I haven't already been meddling enough, let me meddle a little bit more in our lives here this morning. Because step number three, and I want you to write this, our newness of life is manifested by the manner in which we live. Our newness of life is manifested by the manner in which we live. Now, the word manifested, by definition, means to make clear. So how do we make clear to a lost and dying world? How do we make clear with inside the context of the church, how do we make clear that we're walking in newness of life is in the manner in which we live? So here's an interesting takeaway because people come to church all the time, every Sunday, maybe you today wearing a mask. And at some point, every one of us in this room have come to church wearing a mask. My question for all of us is, what do we look like on Monday through Saturday? Are we dabbling in our former life? Are we living in that part before newness? Now, listen to me carefully here. Only God can answer this. Only you know the condition of your heart. The truth of the matter is, if 
We're living six days in our old life and we're wearing a mask on day seven, then we have not experienced metamorphosis. We have not experienced transformation. And we better really be getting on our face before the Lord and seeing where we are. Because as a believer, it's not that we have to do away with that past life. It's we want to do away with that past life. We want nothing to do with that past life because we've been set free from that. We are a new creature in Christ. That's what Paul says. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Church, pay attention here. Old things have what? Passed away. Those things are dead. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So how do we do that, y'all? How do we have that kind of a walk? How do we have that kind of depth in our life? So here we, we do that, and I want you to fill in this blank at the, kind of at the bottom of your outline by taking one small step at a time. One small step at a time. So I want to talk for a minute, kind of transition here for a minute, about the power of the yud. How many of you in the room know what a yud is? Let me see your hands. A yud. Anybody study that word, know what that word means? Okay, you guys are batting a thousand just like the 830 service did. The word yud, and I want you to write this down, it's the smallest letter in the entire Hebrew alphabet. It literally is the size of an apostrophe. So when you're reading the Hebrew, I mean, literally, it's just a little ink mark. But I want you to know something that's true this morning, church family. I want you to know that there is power in the small. That the small can be huge. Let me give you an example. The name for God in the Hebrew is Yahweh. The first letter of Yahweh is the Yud. The name of Jesus in the Hebrew is Yeshua. The Hud is the first letter of Jesus' name in the Hebrew. When the Romans took the Hebrew language and they converted it into Greek, the Yud took two letters, the I and the J, which, by the way, we get the nation Israel from and the city of Jerusalem from, and again the name of Jesus. So let me ask you again, is there power in the small? Because you see, I believe the small is huge. So why does this matter? Because I believe doing the small things well over and over and over and over again produces great fruit. A giant, really, leap, if you will, in the things of Jesus. So the writer of Hebrews, in verse 1, says, Let us press on to maturity. Let us press toward maturity. So how do we do that? Here's how we do it. We do it one step. We do it one day. We do it one week. We do it one month. 
We do it one year. We do it year after year after year after year. We take flight after flight after flight in Christendom. And then hopefully one day when we step on the surface before the feet of Jesus, that we'll in fact be able to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you took one small step with me every day. And because of that, the kingdom was impacted. Now, three practical steps very quickly before I kind of do the conclusion. And I'm talking about absolutely Christianity 101. I want you to write this. Read some in your Bible every day. Now you're going, David, why do you even have to mention that? Because less than 5% of believers read in their Bible every day. Can you imagine that? So what I'm saying is read at least one verse a day. Read at least one passage a day. Read at least one chapter a day. I mean, come on, we watch television four hours a day. It took me six minutes to read uh, Hebrews chapter 12 today, which is where I am in my reading. Guys, we have to stay in the word. Why? Because this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night. Why? That you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Not on your outline of Psalm 119.11 that says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not, what church? Sin against you. We have to do what Paul says to put on the whole armor of God. Where does he start? In the list, church, where does he start? With the belt of truth. How can we gird up if we don't know it? We have to spend time in it. The second thing I want you to write this is to talk to the Lord all during your day. Talk to the Lord all during your day. Paul says it like this, pray without ceasing. You know, it's okay to talk to the Lord while you're driving. Did you know that? I'd, I'd sort of suggest you keep your eyes open while you do that. I mean, but the truth of the matter is we can talk to the Lord in the shower. We can talk to the Lord at our desk at work. We can talk to the Lord while we're cutting the grass. He wants us to communicate to him. He wants to communicate to us. But we have to have this mindset that we have to build on this relationship. And then finally, and this is the one that has changed my life more than anything else, is number three, and that is always have your yes on the table. See, when we think about walking out this, this life towards spiritual maturity, when we start to put our yes on the table, when our yes is always on the table, great things can happen. I know that Isaiah wrote, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then he said, here am I, send me. I don't usually use personal illustrations to this, but I want to I talk about really the, the last 10 years of my life. 
you know, I was, like I said earlier, the pastor of Dayspring Baptist Church, and, and uh, myself and two other men founded a ministry called Dulas Partners. And we started that ministry really with nothing, only the three yeses that we had. So I drove from Mobile to Birmingham, and I went into the office that they were giving me free office space. And I had a, I had a desk that had nothing on it, a credenza that had nothing on it, a file cabinet that had nothing in it. We had no board members. We had no donors. We had no partners in the field. We had nothing but a yes. So I took out a notepad, and I, I began to write down names of people that I knew and names of guys that I knew were missional guys, and I started making phone calls and kept studying the word, kept praying, casting vision, going to the field, asking people to invest, sending text messages, sending email addresses, I mean emails, making phone calls, going to the field, learning the word, continue to work every day. One small step, one small step, one small step. Year one goes by, year three goes by, year five goes by, and we're getting ready to celebrate year 10 in April of this year. So now we have a board full of yeses and we have donors full of yeses and we have people in the field full of yeses. And in my 61 years, 52 of them as a Christian, I've never been a part of an organization that the yes is always on the table the way it is with Dulas. And let me tell you what God has done with that. Not because of our gifts and abilities, not because of anything we do other than the yes, We've seen almost 5 million people come to faith in Christ in 35 countries and now planted over 19,000 churches. That's only happened because of a yes. There is power in yes. So, one small step for Jesus, one giant leap for the kingdom. What about you today? Is your yes on the table to the first step? Is your yes on the table for whatever it is that God's calling you to do?